I'm Brent Grinna, and welcome to The Raise Podcast. We're talking to innovative advancement leaders who aren't satisfied with the status quo. Fundraising is in flux. Revenue's up, but donor counts are dropping. Phonathons are struggling, and mass marketing isn't moving the needle. And our largest donors are increasingly feeling tapped out and challenging us to identify the next generation of supporters. But advancement isn't going extinct. It's being reinvented. That's why we're introducing the Raise podcast hosted by me, Brent Grenna, CEO of Evertrue. Join us as we push the boundaries to ensure future generations can benefit from access to education. On today's show, we welcome Elizabeth Breidinger, Director of Institutional Advancement at the Pingree School. It's quite possible, though not confirmed, that I've known Elizabeth since my first year of college at Brown. Elizabeth was immediately drawn to fundraising as soon as she was exposed to it, and she thinks very deeply about her work. She talks about how to rebound quickly when you ask a prospect for way too much money, and why personalizing the donor experience is critical at every step of the process. Elizabeth also offers a great perspective on what it's been like to work at not only some of the largest fundraising institutions in the higher education sector, but also transitioning to a small independent school. Here we go. So with all of that, welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm thrilled to be involved. Uh, I've been a huge supporter of Evertrue ever since we reconnected um, at Brown. I think that we had not seen each other in a while, and I walked into a meeting about this great new product and was delighted to see that I knew the leadership team. That was a while ago, and uh, <laughs> I, I like seeing the Brown uh, mirror behind you uh, and, and and also the Pingree uh, brand. and. I think it's reflective of what I wanted to kick off with today. You are uh, in a leadership role at a small independent school, but you've also served earlier in your career uh, in positions at the University of Chicago. You had a long tenure, over eight years, I believe, at Brown, uh, moving into uh, management positions, and then uh, have served on the leadership team at a small liberal arts college, uh, Bennington College, which is a, a, a space that I know you're really passionate about, but prior to taking this leadership role and would love to just kind of get your perspective on how you ended up here other than us meeting uh, maybe on my recruiting trip um, and, and sort of when you think about the reflections thus far on your, your journey, recognizing that you're mid-career, um, where have you been and, and, and where do you want to go? Yeah, so I probably had a path, I would think, similar to a, a few other of my peers or people that have kind of found themselves in development, which is a little bit of, of how I think about it. Um, going to Brown, you know, upon graduation, a lot of what was presented to, to us, I believe you may feel the same, was a lot of consulting. Um, you know, a lot of consulting, a lot of finance, something that is, is not necessarily my strength. Um, and, you know, I did some of the interviews. I didn't have any job offers. I really felt more passionate about advertising. Um, and at the time, there wasn't a lot of recruiting there. And so I went to career services and said, you know, this is what I think I like. What do you think? They handed me a binder. They're like, look through these sheets of paper, not to date myself on the internet, um, look through these sheets of paper and figure out what you think sounds good. And of course, I didn't do that. Um, so I left school without a job and had been really involved with senior class gift um, as well as being a class officer and 
had a good relationship with the development office, um, as well as an alum who was five years older than me. He had come back to Brown to talk about fundraising for the fifth reunion with senior class officers. Um, how do you talk to your friends about money? I.e., they really want you to talk to them about money, so don't be afraid to do it. They're excited to give. And I introduced myself to him at the end of the session. Um, you know, I thought he was engaging. I thought he was a little bit cute um, and figured, why not? And so I ended up graduating without a job, running into him at Campus Dance, um, which is a, for those who did not go to Brown, it's a very large um, party around graduation and reunion that is both graduating seniors, current students, and then alumni that really run the span from like one year out to over 50 years out. Arguably the best reunion oriented event in America, fair? I've tried to recreate it at just about every institution I've been to, from University of Chicago. They did not buy it. I was like, it's 16,000 people. Like, it is the best event that has ever existed. They're like, we're not doing that. I've tried to do it at Bennington. We may have it at Pingree at some point. <laughs> so, um, you know, I ended up seeing him again shortly after, a little bit further in the summer, and I didn't have a job yet. He had just moved back um, after business school to Providence. And he said, you know, we should exchange information because he had a friend who was a major gift officer at Brown. It was her first big role and she was looking for an associate. Um, I jumped at the chance to get his phone number and email and connected with him. I had an interview and the rest is pretty much history. Um, you know, I interviewed at Brown shortly after I met with Rick Marshall. Uh, interviewed me, who is now the director of development for the School of Engineering. He has since become a mentor of mine. Mm -hmm. And I really owe a lot to Rick as well. You know, during the interview process as an associate, um, we interviewed, we talked, and he looked at me and he said, I really like you. Don't mess this up. <laughs> so I said, I will try my best. That's a good sign mid-interview. Mid-interview. Um, and I took the job and I, I worked at Brown for about a year. Um, I felt like being a native Rhode Islander, having gone to school in Rhode Island, I wanted to see something else. Um, and so I really enjoyed the position in the office. I was just eager to go to another location. Uh, so I ended up taking a job in DC and working in sales at a healthcare company. I liked it, I didn't love it. Um, and probably about a year or so into that, I had a moment of reflection. I was looking at other opportunities within the sales space in healthcare. And my paternal grandmother passed away. Um, so at that point, my father had lost both of his parents and he was pretty upset. And I went home, which at the time was um, at Colgate. Mm -hmm. Spent the weekend with him. He did not take time off from work. Uh, so I ended up spending the weekend going to homecoming uh, at parents weekend. We had a field hockey game. We had a football tailgate. We had a football game. We went home. We had a quick change of clothes. We went to the president's house for a family weekend reception. And then we went out to dinner with three generations of Colgate uh, student and alumni. And you're just, you're just riding, you're riding along at this point with, with your dad. I'm riding along and loving it. Take your daughter to work day, basically. Basically. Uh, I had a lot of Colgate swag on. I go all in. So I'm, um, the woman, the mother turns to me at dinner and says, you know, do you live at home? I said, oh, that's so nice. I'm older. I'm out of the house. And 
She said, so you're home visiting and you're spending your weekend with us. Like, thank you so much. And I said, oh, are you kidding me? This is fantastic. Like, I, I love this. You know, I'm, I'm hearing about how their grand, you know, her daughter is having a shared experience with her grandfather around the buildings at Colgate and some of the, the classes, you know, having similar themes. And so I left that and basically said, this is really what I want to do with my life. I love these relationships, the history of institutions, the fact that you can have a granddaughter and a grandfather having a shared experience and feel close because of a place made me then, you know, leave my sales job and go to University of Chicago. Um, University of Chicago. I I'm just going to interject because yeah. we're very close with the Colgate team. I, I don't know that they know that they've inspired your entire career path uh, in part <laughs> due to this, this uh, experience that weekend. So we'll make sure to share that with, with the crew at Colgate. Do you know any of the folks in advancement there? I don't. All right. Well, we will make sure that they, uh, they get a that copy they of now. I've, I've been a big Colgate. I have stopped people on the street and done a very intense go gate. All right. They were a little bit like, you know, like, do I know you? I'm like, no, I didn't go to Colgate. Just love the school. Just a fan. Um, yeah. Then went to alumni relations for two years at university of Chicago. And were you in Chicago at the time? I was in Chicago and I was the associate director for East Coast programs. I traveled to the East Coast, primarily Washington, D.C., New York City, and Boston, probably every four weeks. And I did a mix of running faculty lectures. We had 13 a year on the East Coast, mm -hmm. recruiting volunteers, managing the clubs. We at Chicago held a budget for every club. And so I did all the programming and the budgeting for each of them. Um, and purchasing, we did not say, you know, here's your budget, go out and, and put together your program and let us know how it goes. We were very hands-on, um, which is a very different model than I've seen at some other schools. So in that case, you're representing UChicago on the East Coast. I'm sure there's a significant alumni community up and down the East Coast, um, but you're based in Chicago. Does that make sense? I, I like it. So you, I, you feel like the regional focus, whether it's engagement or fundraising, doesn't need to be in market necessarily. You can do it remotely because that's definitely something. And that was, you know, you were doing that 10, yeah. 10 plus years ago, but maybe when you contrast that with your healthcare sales experience, I'm sure that in that organization, it was much more common to have field representatives covering the markets uh, that they were serving, yet that's still somewhat rare in the advancement space. I'm curious to get your take on that. I like it because I I think that as equally important as it is to build external relationships, you need to build internal relationships. To be able to come back from a trip to campus and have follow-up conversations, a lot of times with administrators and faculty, it's easier to catch people. They know you. Uh, you need to leverage your internal rep reputation, sorry, in order to get the information that you need in order to best serve the alumni uh, or parents, whomever you're fundraising with. I think that's really valuable. I think being able to have the opportunity to meet regularly with students, faculty, and other staff um, to learn about their work gives you the op like, really gives you an advantage in meeting with prospects because you can frame something and say, you know, last week when I was speaking with the CFO, yeah. This is what I learned. And if I'm, re if I'm remote, I'm not having those conversations. Um, I think people are, are looking to you in the external community to best represent the school and to have your finger on the pulse. Uh, you know, fundamentally, I don't know if this is still the case, but I know Harvard and Stanford 
have for a very long time only had, they've had everybody based on main campus. Um, and I feel like they do pretty well. So I'm willing to follow their model. So now you're at UChicago, spent a couple years there, but then ultimately uh, that siren call from Providence. Brings it you- is. My, my dear friend, Rick Marshall. Uh, so stayed in touch with Rick. I, I don't know Rick um, yeah. personally, but you've, you've stayed in touch even though you sort of had the one year stint right out of school. You went to DC to work in sales. You made the move to UChicago. How did you keep that mentorship relationship uh, alive and sort of how did the opportunity manifest itself at, uh, to come back yeah. to Brown? I would say the mentor relationship really solidified while working for Rick. Even though I was a very junior employee, he was very interested in hearing about what I was interested in. Why do you think that is? I mean, he, he was a part of a big yeah. team. There's a lot of junior employees. What do you think you did to sort of earn that additional uh, respect or, or, or credibility early in your career? Yeah, you know, I'm great, but I don't know that I really did anything. I think Rick is one of those man. I should rephrase it. Rick is one of those managers that really takes an interest in helping you develop professionally. He has done this for a number of his associates. I should say in turn, I think the associate needs to show an eagerness in the work and wanting to figure out why are we doing something? And I I think I leaned a lot towards how can we do things better? So this wasn't necessarily um, just a testament to you. This is more Rick style anybody who gets the opportunity to work for him is likely going to benefit. What are some, I mean, you mentioned some of the former associates. It sounds like he has this track record of mentorship. Where are those people now? Are are you in touch with that sort of group? Um, uh, Where have you seen others go? I've been in touch with a few folks. There was an, after I left, they hired into my role, another Brown alum who was class of 03. She just finished up some graduate work not that long ago at Harvard. I think she's involved now in Harvard with maybe teaching and mentorship. Um, I know that we hired another young woman when I was at Brown. I think most of them have moved into, you know, the next level uh, work with an advancement. Yeah. It's hard to be a major gifts associate because the work of the major gift officer is so customized to the officer prospect relationship. You can help a little bit with visit scheduling, with preparing documents, but really your name is not the one that's ever out there. And the portfolios are smaller, so your prospect manager can usually manage the volume and they are always the face. Where in class campaigns or reunion giving, it becomes easier because you're looking at, you know, classes of 1,500 students. Right. It's easy to, to say to your associate, you know, be the point of contact for these 100. You're crafting letters, you're sending them out, you're reaching out on behalf of us, your name is constantly out there. So it was really challenging at Brown within this model to provide a lot of professional development opportunities for associates on the individual giving side because of the nature of the work. So you're really sort of in the background trying to get exposure to the, the craft of advancement, the actual fundraising process, but you're not in the room necessarily. You're not in the room, which for so many of the next level positions is, what, how are you working with prospects? And it's hard to show that, but what you do have is how are you building a relationship? Because it's not a one-year reunion cycle. You know, if you're supporting a gift officer for two years, you're seeing how they're developing a relationship with someone for those two years 
if not getting the backstory of what happened beforehand, you're seeing what's happening afterwards. Um, you're really doing a lot more with individual strategy and also understanding more comprehensive proposals. So what was it like when you did make that leap going from sort of in the background supporting the relationship building but not doing it directly to getting out there and, and doing it directly? You obviously had some sales experience previously in your career and at UChicago it sounds like you're out building those relationships directly, but what was it like to make that switch at Brown? It was, it was, it was nervous at first. I mean, at Chicago, like, do you remember your first visit or I mean, Oh yes. Yeah. I, so as an associate, um, Rick let me go with him on a prospect. I did two prospect visits. Okay. One we showed up, showed up and the gentleman, I think graduated in the forties and he was, you know, outside mowing his lawn with, I'd never seen like a non motorized lawnmower before. Uh, it was a very small lawn. On the Not East. his first time using that mower, fair to say? First time, I'm like, wow, that's interesting. Um, I then also met with the mayor of Providence, who was a Brown grad, uh, which was really fun. And then Chicago, we had goals to increase volunteer recruitment. And so I did a lot more prospect meetings in Chicago. I had another fantastic colleague who is a major gift officer, no longer at Chicago, I believe it, Wheaton now. And I asked him if I could shadow him. Who's that? David Ford. Okay. Uh, he may not, is he at Wheaton? He might be Brandeis. We ran into each other not that long ago. Um, I apologize, David, if you are listening. We'll track him down. It's track all good. Track him down. He was great. But, you know, as an alumni relations professional in Chicago, I asked if I could go with him on a major gift visit and asked him a little bit about how he prepped for meetings and what he did to get himself ready. That was very valuable. And then what do you going, say? I mean, what were the, uh, any of those lessons? Yeah, reading publications. Oh, absolutely. Reading publications. Um, I, Brown Daily Herald um, at University of Chicago. I read University of Chicago student newspaper. I read the Brown Daily Herald every day. I had, I was on the Brown Daily Herald listserv to get the daily updates so I could why, see. Why does that matter so much? Sometimes, sometimes it was great to send an article to an alum. If there was something particularly interesting happening on campus, there was a couple times there were things interesting happening on campus and you would like maybe edit some of the, le the, the, the sentences afterwards because <laughs> you're like, I just want you to focus on this great thing. Maybe not so much on the sexual health of students. <laughs> so I would send those out. It was good to know if there was something kind of coming up on campus that was causing either a lot of excitement or great concern around students. Um, I would read cover to cover both the alumni magazines um, at all of the institutions I've been to so that I could see again, what stories are we putting out there? What could be an interesting piece of information to share in donor meetings? Um, at Brown, I think I was one of the few people that read all of the white papers that we would put out. Uh, we did a curricular- You mean from a research perspective or just in general university white papers? University white papers. We did a review on the curriculum, um, full curricular assessment, I read that cover to cover. Uh, I don't know if we're doing as many white papers as Brown is doing as many white papers as they used to. All of the strategic planning documents I read cover to cover um, during presentation. But you feel like that might not be customary for for colleagues or some people did, but it wasn't. I don't think so. I mean, that was something David Ford really. He talked about just really preparing yourself. And so when I made the move to Brown, I made sure to do that. Um, I don't think everyone did. I mean, some of the, the curricular review at 40 you know, was like 40 pages long and talking about how we were changing, you know, like four classes in Africana studies. But 
they become really interesting talking points. Um, mm. Similar. So I started at Brown as a gift officer. Rick Marshall called me at Chicago and we'd stayed in touch through Christmas cards and occasional emails. Um, thought of me when they had a job open for a Southeast fundraiser. And I, I came in and interviewed. I, there were some concerns because I hadn't done that much solicitation. Um, but you know, was nervous the first time and, and easily fell into it. I think one of my first meetings, I solicited someone for $10,000 uh, for reunion, Ed was shaking. My boss was also in the room. Um, was like, oh my God, this is my first time. And, you know, now you casually are like, oh, would you be interested in a $100,000 scholarship? Um, I also solicited somebody for a $100,000 scholarship later in my career without batting an eye. And he was so impressed that he did it. <laughs> I was like, wow. Have you but, ever uh, asked for way too much money? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> What's oh, that? And when um, do you know? You know right away. When they call when they and choke, they kind of choke. And you know, I I asked for half a million dollars, and I got, <laughs> I got or two fifty. Cut off a zero. You know, half a million to two fifty, um, and they did two fifty. Wow. Okay. Which is the right okay. and. It was interesting. It was their first multi-year pledge uh, at Brown, and they were very interested in getting a formal proposal. So, how did you decide five hundred? I mean, you led with five hundred. It elicited yeah. the cough. You have retreated yeah. and got something done at a at a really impressive level. But why why lead with five hundred instead of two fifty instead of one hundred instead of a million? I'm always interested to know about the art versus science yeah. dynamic and how much of that is informed by research versus just your gut feel or, or, or past relationship with, with the prospect. But because like in so many businesses, right, when you're working in healthcare sales, you had a, a basic offering, a middle offering and a premium offering, but you basically had a, a few price points you could offer. And in yeah. the world of philanthropy, you could offer 10,000 to 10 million. And it's, it's much less clear than the typical business that has a pricing policy. Yeah. So his research rating was a million dollars. A uh, million dollars over five years. And how much, I mean, on a one to 10, yeah. how much do research ratings inform the actual ask versus serving as a general indication that you should be spending time with someone? And maybe it's different at Brown versus other places. In my experience, I would say it's different at Brown than in other places. Um, knowing who our head of prospect management was at Brown um, at the time I was there, Elizabeth Crabtree was overseeing the department. Yep. We had a very large research development team and they were conservative in rating. And I, I very much valued and took really solidly their, their research. Um, I've now worked at other organizations where we have not had a full research team and have relied more on a wealth engine. And that is, that's more, here's a direction I felt like Brown pretty much was, you know, we had a direction. We've now thoroughly investigated this and this is where we feel like they should be. Yeah. I remember early on in our journey at Evertrue, I went down to meet with Elizabeth just to get feedback and advice. And she shared some of the spreadsheets and templates that she had uh, to really spit out the, the potential range of ask based on all kinds of, of private indicators. And it was my first window into the private investigation work that really is um, yeah. prospect research. And it was, it was fascinating 
Um, at the same time, only so many of those inputs are truly verifiable. So it, you know, even in its finest form, is going to be an educated, you know, generalized direction. But it definitely yeah. can help put some data behind leading with a hundred thousand versus a million versus more. Yeah. But in spite of all that good work, sometimes you elicit coughs when you ask for too much. I would say um, that uh, he had this person had other commitments, and so perhaps they were giving in total philanthropic dollars about half a million a year. We just weren't getting the full half a million. Uh, so I don't think the number was that off. I think that since my departure, I believe they've actually done more. Um, I don't know if they've yet been a million dollar donor, but this was kind of their first entry point into major gift world at the institution. Um, I ended up pretty much keeping what the half a million was going to fund the same to the 250 and came up with what we were asking in conjunction with the dean um, of the school as well as the donor and really helped steer them towards this is what the school needs and also connecting it back to they had a child at the school and so connecting it back to uh, a program that their child was involved in mm -hmm. to make it personal and I, I don't know if this made a difference but I also wanted to talk to them about this is an opportunity to create an endowed fund at the at Brown that you can then get your child involved in. And so as you're thinking about teaching philanthropy to your children, this is a great vehicle. This is a fund that will always be there, that will be in your family's name and would be an opportunity for them to start to contribute if and when they're ready. Talking about personalizing the donor experience, I know, uh, having spoken with hundreds of fundraisers uh, over the years, thousands probably, sometimes you can get some pretty strange requests. Uh, you do have to deal with the very personal nuances of, of the, uh, the prospects and you have to balance sort of when you meet those requests versus when you don't. And, and you were sharing um, at one point in a conversation that you had to recently uh, teach your, your uh, one, a sixth grade class at the school at, at Pingree um, what fundraising is and share, uh, I think you shared some of your more memorable experiences. So anything stand out uh, in, in the sixth grade version of advancement? I do. So sixth grade has been great. I've, I've now done four of these sessions. Um, I had two students last week who asked for my PowerPoint afterwards, and I don't know if they were just humoring me, but I was so delighted about their energy and advancement. <laughs> um, but I, and what I was the catalyst? I mean, it is interesting to think about yeah. introducing the world of philanthropy to sixth graders. I'm guessing most independent schools aren't doing that. So how did that come to be? And then I'd, I'd love your, your specifics around some of the more memorable fundraising uh, initiatives. Yeah, it, I mean, I think Pingree, Pingree, I think, is amazing. And one of the things that we have instituted for a number of years has been advisories. Um, and so we will have small groups of students with a faculty member. They meet within the middle school a few times a week for 20 minutes. And then in the upper school, they meet once a week for 25 minutes. And it's a chance for students to have a personal relationship with faculty who are not necessarily their teachers every day. Uh, we really feel strongly about making it a place in which students feel like they have a lot of access and they always have somebody to talk to, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of what they need. Um, and advisories, especially for the upper school, don't have a lot of structure. It's really about who the group is, what the group needs, and having conversations 
that, you know, make students feel like they have a, another person or adult to talk to. And so you're now specifically connected with the sixth grade class. I'm now specifically connected with the sixth grade class. In sixth grade advisory, they're spending a lot of time talking about our community. Uh, thinking about the Pingree community beyond your, you know, your friends and your students and faculty, but who else is part of Pingree? And so they're reaching, they've reached out to a few of our departments that are more staff heavy and less faculty focused to come and talk to the sixth grade. And so the communications office has been talking to sixth grade, college counseling and advancement. And so it's given us an opportunity to meet with everyone in the sixth grade to talk about the work that we do. What is alumni relations? What is development? How does this touch your daily life? Thinking about the ways in which support comes in and, and helps with the student experience. Um, I've had students ask really great questions. Uh, one of them asked, you know, what's an alum? I think some of these things you take for granted being in the business and you're like, oh, well, you are an alum because you've gone to Pingree. We, we work inclusive. We want everyone involved. Um, to being asked, what is the strangest request I've ever had from a donor? That sounds like a great question. What is the strangest request you've ever had from a donor? It's a great question. Um, I'm going to tell the story. There's going to be somebody I know who will listen. who will be like, oh my gosh, I remember that. Um, <laughs> okay. Like, oh, sure my, that is. so much time on that. Um, we had a, a donor um, at Brown that had gone to get his master's degree at the school and was very interested in having his articles published about parenting. Um, his master's was not in education. Okay. It was actually in engineering. Uh, he was a self-taught education specialist, one would say. And he created a blog that was articles that he was hoping to get published and was very interested. In, in magazines or just picked up on other blogs or just. Anywhere, just anywhere. wanting to get his work out there. And okay. so he talked to us about making um, an eight figure gift. If we eight could, figures. eight figures, if we could help him. How many eight figure conversations would be going on at a given time? Uh, within my prospect pool, not many. Not many. <laughs> Let's just say one or two or something. Yeah. So this is, a, this yeah, is, this is your this best is prospect, basically. This is my, my best prospect, who was not my best prospect for a long time. I mean, he'd been pretty unresponsive to our outreach. He was an Significant giving history or what was the catalyst to? Almost none. How do you go from almost none to 10 million or 10 million plus, I should say? I think it is not common. Um, we had another another person on my team uh, later on at Brown have a similar seven figure conversation with somebody who had given hardly anything previously, okay. had a graduate degree from Brown and felt like I didn't want to make it. He, he felt he did not want to make a gift until he was able to make a really substantial gift. And so he sold his business and that was a moment in which he could make a really substantial gift. Okay. And at that point we then found out like how transformative his graduate work was for him and his life. Uh, but up until then, you know, he could be one of those prospects that you write off, um, similar to my eight-figure donor. So in the context of your eight-figure donor, they're yeah. a self-taught education expert with a master's in engineering. They get on your radar. You're trying to build the relationship. What happens? What happens is that you some, get a little bit lucky and they are an inbound lead <laughs> and say, I really want help with search engine optimization. And if you give me help with that, I will leave you this whole retirement account. And, and so on a one to 10, your level of comfort with SEO 
is yeah. what when this inbound request comes in? That would be non-existent. Okay. I know right. that Google so you're Googling it right away. You're like, all right, I'm going to help. I'm, this yes, I'm Googling Google to figure out how I can get more hits on a site. Okay. Um, apparently, the only answer was pay for ads, <laughs> pay them to get better okay. results. Um, but I had this call, and they they said, "Will you help me? I want to be, you know, on the Brown homepage." And I'm thinking to myself, like, I cannot put you on the Brown homepage, you know, internal politics of a large institution. So basically, in part, as I consider making a $10 million plus gift to the university, I'd really like a link on brown.edu showcasing my self-taught research. Okay. Yes. Not an unreasonable request, I don't think. It's not unreasonable. I, as, you know, a low-level major gift officer is not going to be able to pull that. Um, so, you don't just call up the head of Brown's website and You know, P-A-U-R, hello, hello, you know, public affairs and university relations. Could you do me a solid and post an article on this? Um, it's a little bit more catered than that. Okay. And so I tried to think creatively of, I do not own the Brown webpage, but we do own as a department, the alumni relations webpage. And so we negotiated about having his work linked on the, you know, the alumni.brown.edu webpage. He was open to that. I coordinated with some really fantastic colleagues in alumni relations. I mean, they really worked hard. Talk about that because you're not comfortable calling up central communications yeah. to make that request, but you are comfortable but to set context. You, you are, you describe yourself as a low yeah. level major gift officer at the time. There's a couple hundred people in the advancement organization. Did you have relationships? Who are some of the people you worked with on the alumni relations side? Yeah, I actually worked directly with Todd, uh, Todd Andrews, who was the director. Um, and I'm sure Todd has a much fancier title, but was overseeing all of alumni relations at the time. So Todd was VP of alumni relations at the time. Did, did you know him well previously, or was this really the first time you worked together directly? We had known each other a little bit. I think I had the, the value, like the benefit of, working at Brown when I first graduated. And so I knew some people then coming back. Um, I also came back to Brown as a gift officer right after my reunion. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was involved as well. Um, I believe I might've co-chaired the fifth reunion. So you had some credibility with, with Todd, but, but ultimately you had to make the case to him. Was that a tough sell? A little bit. I mean, I believe Ron Vandendorpel would have been our VP um, or at the time and you know, Ron was behind it. I also worked really closely with David Kuhn, who was our executive director of plan giving, uh, since this was a planned gift. And so we had buy-in across the board around the size um, of this fund. And so it, it was easier to have that conversation with Todd. I also really got lucky in that Todd and Dorsey Baker were, were interested in building out a profile section on the alumni website around notable and interesting alumni. And so this kind of was a catalyst to have them do that a little bit sooner. We decided it would make sense to profile this person as the first alumni profile, and then we could link in their website and work so that we could reference it. So when people start to, to do some search engine looking, if they get Brown, they could look him up. Hopefully he gets more hits because the Brown address has bumped him up in search engine optimization. So his research would get out more. We were also marketing it to the full Brown community. You know, it also included rolling out, I believe, in, um, I, don't know, I don't think Brown's doing this anymore. We used to have 
like I think a monthly or every other month, like alumni newsletter. And so it was profiled within the alumni newsletter. Additionally, as part of this gift conversation, we agreed that um, we would have regular calls with this donor around search engine optimization. And I had an incredible colleague uh, who recently left Brown um, that was in basically our communications department and, you know, God bless Bandit. Like, I think he, like he was calling everyone he knew so that we could give advice on how to increase search engine optimization. I think we did maybe four, four or five calls that lasted an hour, just kind of talking through, here are things you can do, here are other tricks that you have. And we learned a lot and then hung up the phone and we're both like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. <laughs> you do all this work prior to actually having the commitment or was there sort of a commitment with some contingency at this point? I mean, I'm sure in the gift agreement, you're not, you're not including this that, that you know, that you're committing to it. So it's more kind of a unwritten understanding, but, but just how do you, how do you sort of try to do, you know, go out of your way to help this donor, this prospect who can make a huge impact to the yeah. institution while at the same time, driving the, the close, closing yeah. process for the gift. The impact that this gift will ultimately have when realized is enormous. Um, it is, when, I, when we did the gift, and I don't know, the relationship has continued on, and he is continuing to give, this donor, um, and giving more on the cash side. But you know, this, this large gift is actually gonna support unrestricted endowment. And so it will be huge for Brown when they end up receiving it. Um, we had a lot of conversation. I think there was a lot of good faith in terms of we were meeting all of, all of the expectations and really strong communication. So phone calls and emails of, of this is what we are doing in order to get things posted. You know, we had somebody call him and interview him. We were doing these, these calls around search engine optimization. So I think all of these things were in play as we were discussing the paperwork. Um, what was interesting, and I, I've seen this now a few other times for playing gifts. Uh, they, the donor also had a personal story. He had a relative uh, that was older when they passed and they ended up needing a full-time caregiver. Uh, he was under the impression that he was going to be in the will at one point and felt as though the caregiver really swayed mm. um, the relative's desires with their estate. And you know, very, he's like, it's not about the money. You know, I don't, I don't need the money. And we knew that very clearly with the philanthropic commitment he was making, but it was really more upsetting for him that he saw someone who had a wish or a desire that wasn't able to be fulfilled because they weren't able to make decisions anymore. Mm -hmm. And he felt really strongly about wanting, you know, to, to leave his money to, Chair, to a charitable organization and that getting something irrevocable now so that if something happens later on, his wishes are still able to be honored. Um, and that was, that was the personal side of the gift. I, I think it's a great story and, and congrats on, on closing that. I'm sure it had to be um, amazing when it finally closed, but I think it's reflective of when as a gift officer or a representative of an advancement organization, you can serve the prospect and, and try to find ways to marshal resources that 
Um, in this case, it was a small thing. I mean, I'm sure that the, the SEO credit that, that actually was delivered via alumni.brown.edu was, was modest, but probably not meaningful in the grand scheme of the traffic and the, the success of the research being published, but it was more, you know, really a good example of the thought that counts. And I think that, um, I was just catching up with, with Andy Shandlin, who's the new uh, VP of Alumni Relations at Brown. Uh, and we've been talking a lot about this idea of, of how do you bring more of a, a success-oriented model to the world of advancement? How do you really think about alumni success and, and think about what are the resources that the university has at its disposal that can help a given constituent in, in ways small or big in their career um, and, and I think in your case, even with somebody who is incredibly wealthy, incredibly successful, there was still a small thing you could do that would uh, be valued and, and result in more philanthropic contributions. And so how do you sort of take that service mentality and scale it across a, a huge alumni population? That's uh, really difficult. I mean, it's hard to pull this off even with your, your most important prospects. I don't know how you do it more broadly, but I feel like that's a huge untapped area of potential for the sector. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, and I want to um, wrap up relatively soon, but uh, any other creative, uh, you know, when you think about um, making the case for philanthropy, the pricing and packaging of, of uh, what a gift can go towards, um, especially in the context of physical space uh, can get interesting. So anything stand out on, on that front? I, you know, I haven't done as much gift closure on, on facilities. Um, my pool, I will say when I was full-time fundraising, I really had a pool that was, I feel like new, like new, new to cultivation, new to the process, new to major gifts. Um, but I mean, you've got the scale of benches, you know, what's, what's a bench go for versus what's a building go for? Oh then, no. Like, yes. I'm all against, I'm against the bench. I literally love nothing more than a flex fund. So like, you don't want to, you don't want to be selling benches or nooks around campus. I don't want to sell benches. I don't want to sell nooks. So on nooks, I, I did have another gift where somebody was very interested in finding a cozy nook for my instructions. Whose idea was it to, that came from the donor? This came from the donor. It was a parent. Um, their child was graduating. Their child very much loved reading and studying and, you know, wanted to be seated in a very large chair in a cozy area. And so I was told that they had, a, they were going to make a gift of a hundred thousand dollars and they really wanted a cozy nook. I this, went, when you say you were told, was that, did that come from the donor directly? That or? came from the donor directly. Yeah. This, this is what we want. We want to spend a hundred thousand dollars and we want a cozy nook. Um, I spent a lot of time going around campus, taking pictures of spaces that I thought we could dress up as cozy, um, some spaces that were very uncozy, and put together a proposal, I think at least two proposals around here is what the space is, here's what the vision could be um, at a large institution. You know, it's hard, actually a large institution, any institution, it's hard to find facility space that's less than $100,000 to name that was a real issue um, to do bigger things with, with cozy spaces was also going to be more money. They didn't want to spend more money. 
uh, I think I sent like two or three proposals on here are pictures and spaces and what we could do. And they said it wasn't, wasn't exactly what they were looking for. You know, another thing that really was- Wasn't cozy enough. Wasn't cozy. Wasn't mucky enough. No. And we ended up selling a flex fund instead. <laughs> you got them to the flex fund. I got them to the flex fund. The, the other most important part of their child's experience was that a guest speaker came into a class and talked about their work in a gallery. And that is how their child ended up getting an internship and was pursuing art history in graduate school after graduation. So we came up with the idea to create a flex fund that would support guest speakers, not visiting faculty, but a, a one-time, a one-day guest speaker who would come into the classroom for the arts. And it would be managed by the head of creative arts and there would be an opportunity to have a rotation of where the person was coming from, whether it be from dance, drama, visual arts, et cetera. Uh, hence the flex. Sounds like a good win in, in redirecting and, and finding the donor interests uh, that matched with it your perception of the needs. We're trying to do more of this at Pingree too. So let's talk a little bit about that. You, you, yeah. you were in these really large institutions. Um, you're now in a leadership role at Pingree. What's the biggest, you know, what, what are you uh, most excited about? Biggest observations? Um, any challenges that are unique to that setting uh, as you, you know, think about other colleagues who maybe are, are in a large university setting, but considering moving to a smaller shop, I'm sure you get outreach all the time. What, what are your kind of observations on that topic? Um, I've loved it. And I should thank you because you've told me for a very long time that I should look at independent schools. <laughs> and you are right. <laughs> this, is, this is a great move. Thank you, Brent. Um, I, I, you know, I loved higher ed. I think it, I'm most excited about higher ed with institutional research. Um, that was something that I really loved and didn't realize how much I would miss it until I went to a small liberal arts school. I love how classroom work incorporates undergraduate students, how you're really doing a lot of discovery and it doesn't have to be in science, but across the board in research. Being at Pingree, I actually got that back um, with the level of work that we do here you know, we have independent research teams for both humanities and the sciences. Our students are doing independent research work guided by faculty. Uh, we have facilities that are extraordinary. And so I, I felt like coming to this school was really being on par with some of the larger research institutions I've been at uh, due to the quality of the educators um, and the students and the facilities. I think the big difference is being in the school you know, so many large advancement shops have moved off campus. Um, I've pretty much been off campus for the majority of my career to actually be in the school. I was a little nervous about it at first because it was such a difference and it's been fantastic. I have many more conversations with faculty. Uh, they will stop by. I will see them down in the cafeteria. We will eat together. I'm able to hear and also see firsthand what's happening in the classroom. I get to see the students every day. Uh, as we know, I've, I've, I've met with sixth graders. I've met with the student body president to talk about how advancement can be more front and center in the community so that students see us and understand the work that we do. Do you feel like there is anything, if you were to go back and be in a leadership role at a large private research institution, let's say, and you're off campus and the advancement shop is off campus, does it make you feel like there's a need to better connect the staff to the 
student body and community? I mean, how do you sort of, because um, it sounds like it's really inspiring to be around the students, around the faculty, around the parents who are being impacted by the ph philanthropy in a much more, um, uh, you know, direct manner than maybe you get when you're a gift officer off campus and you might go weeks without really interacting directly with, with the campus community. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of it is bringing, bringing the two together and, you know, we had a, a good setup at Brown with this in terms of bringing students and faculty and other administrators to our team meetings on a monthly basis. I've, I did that a little bit when I was at Bennington and getting started and having a rotating list of administrators and faculty to come talk to us about their programs. We didn't have as many students. At Pingree, I've done the same thing um, in terms of bringing in faculty. We have had so far one student who's come and talked to us. We have a, a very well-known um, and reputable honor code. And so we had this, the president of the honor um, I'm like, what exactly is the official term, but president basically of the, of the honor board, I think it's their official term, come and talk to us about what does the, the honor code at Pingree mean and how do you enforce it? And it's, you know, fascinating that it is, it's regulated by students. You know, we have representatives, two from each class. We have a president and a secretary, and they are really the ones who are working with their peers and talking to them about what it means to, to put yourself behind the community, um, protecting others. It's really fascinating on, you know, what they're doing to kind of manage social media and where does, you know, the honor of, of our school kind of stop in terms of you're off campus and what are the implications of that? And, and what does it mean for online? Because it's everywhere. And so I think having those conversations as a team has really made us also feel with an institutional advancement, like we're really part of the larger community it also gives us really great things to talk to alumni about of, you know, the honor code that you held so dear when you were here in 1956 is that same honor code and we're still upholding those values. Um, and so I think really it takes time, but to create that meeting schedule where you're making sure that you're constantly having guests come in and talk about their work um, and also doing visitations. You know, my team will be going, we have two campuses. My team will be going to the lower school tomorrow which is about 25 minutes away to meet with the new director of the lower school mm -hmm. and be on the campus. And yes, it is easier for her as one person to come to us in Basking Ridge, but I think it's really important, really important for our team to be on the other campus so that they see we're making this commitment. We are going to come to you. We want to learn about what you're doing because we want to help you enhance that. Or what do you, what do you need? Like we are, we're here for everybody. It sounds consistent with, uh, the sort of Dan Ford philosophy just around being knowledgeable, doing your research. In this case, it sounds like it's more, instead of reading all the materials, you're, you're yeah. physically going and trying to really integrate with, with the community. Um, Which is why it's so helpful to have everybody on site. For sure. Because again, we're building those relationships. So when something comes up down the road and you have a donor who's interested in a cozy nook or whatever the next thing is, you know the director of the lower school, you can call her and say, I have somebody who's interested in this. What are you guys doing? Yeah. Or do you have a need? And the other thing is also really being able to work closely with faculty, and this has been really beneficial here, in terms of talking about as well, what do you have a need for? We need to move away from, we're taking any gift that comes our way 
but figuring out how do we work with donors to either get them to maybe take like an alternative veer in what they want to do, hold things maybe the same, but with a little bit of nuance or tweaking so that it meets a school need or something that's part of our mission, as opposed to just, I want to give you this, make it happen. Right. Well, look, we want to, um, we're going to wrap up here shortly, but I did want to get a, a couple of quick hits in before uh, we finish. One, you travel around the country, you get to meet some amazing people uh, throughout your career, um, people who are true leaders in, in different industries, different cities. Any uh, standout, memorable prospect or, or just people you've gotten to know along, along the uh, fundraising journey? Um, some great people. I have... I have one prospect who, and this is why people always do this work, is the people that you meet. It's incredible. Um, I had one prospect who was very interested in creating an endowed scholarship. And he let me know that he was interested in financial aid because he was able to go to college um, due to the fact that an elderly neighbor who his family helped take care of, when he passed, he left them his home. And they sold the home and paid for their son to go to college. And those are the stories that are just life-changing. And he now felt really passionately about financial aid because essentially his neighbors is the one who allowed him to be afforded the opportunity to go to college and he wanted to pay it forward. Um, I'm still friendly with, with prospects who had been pretty unengaged with the institution and we, we built relationships um, I think I told you, Brent, that I happened upon their home one time on banana, banana bread day and have since now, every time I see them, they make me banana, <laughs> they make me banana bread. Um, if I am not able to stay for a long time, I get a to go bag and it is utterly delicious. So, you know, you're on the right track when the prospects start making you banana bread. It's fantastic. I'm like this. And they think like when people thank you for letting them give money, um, is the best thing. I mean, it, it never gets tired of hearing, I didn't feel connected and now I do because you have come and, and talked to me and now I feel like I, I know what's happening and I'm really excited um, by the work that's taking place. I will have my, my advice, my David Ford-esque advice um, back to GIF officers is to find something you're excited about. You know, I've, I've worked with a, an officer before who gave an overview of the of the college and said, kind of this, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. And afterwards I said, you know, find something that you're excited about so that the enthusiasm comes across in your voice. He's like, I don't know what that is. I'm like, find like two things. Like you have to like two things <laughs> and make those two things your talking point in all of these meetings and people will be excited because you are excited. Yeah. So uh, on, on that note, when, when you think about, um, you know, one kind of closing question I love to ask is just when you think about the, the most successful people you've worked with, the most effective fundraisers, and you've shared some of their names already on this, on this uh, session, but what do you think separates them versus the rest, versus everyone else? I think it's really, I think for the frontline fundraiser, I think it's really getting to know the prospect and not rushing the conversation. It's a fine line because you need to have the dollar conversation. But I, I think it's really understanding what are you hoping to accomplish with your philanthropy? Um, and then I, I think that helps you with the dollar amount, getting them excited, um, and also being able to really show them impact 
you know, instead of just saying like, we need, we need $250,000 for an endowed scholarship. Like, would you do that? But understanding and getting to the point in the process where like, I know that you, that your parents were able to afford college because your neighbor gifted a house. And now I can talk to you about in the first meeting. No. And now I can really talk to you about like how life-changing financial aid is. And that makes the, the ask stronger. And I also, I know you're saying yes. Um, I think as a manager, I think putting in time, like putting in the time to really work with your staff and then also trusting them. You know, I have, I've been on the end of, if you're not here, you're not working. Uh, I think as a frontline fundraiser, that's really challenging. I, I do think it's a sacrifice, regardless of if you have a family, um, to basically uproot your life, you know, a week a month or eight days a month in order to do visits and really being thoughtful and managing in terms of, you know, I know you're going to the West coast for a week. If you want to take a red eye home on Thursday, you can work from home on Friday. And it sounds so small, but I think it's shocking the number of managers who don't say that. Um, And just being really mindful of like, you know, it's, it can be glamorous at times. Um, with the travel and meeting interesting people and eating out and being in a city, um, living out of a hotel can be great sometimes. And then other times, you know, you can't get home. I one time in Chicago pretended to be um, a businessman's wife to try and get uh, his A-list status and get bumped off to get back home on a plane because I was delayed for it. He was very delightful. He was like, I'm sorry that you're able to get home. We were on the same flight. He's like, why don't you just pretend to be my fiance? I was engaged. Why don't you pretend to be my fiance? And then I can see if I can give you my status and you can also get bumped up. And I was like, okay. It's delightful. We pretended to be engaged for about five hours. And then I don't think the airline bought it. I did not get bumped. I did not get bumped up. I was delayed like five hours. Good effort. Creativity on the fly. You try. You try. Um, well, look, thank you so much for the time today. Any closing thoughts, reflections, any shout outs you want to give? Um, oh, wow. You think would be a good guest, a future guest. Oh, wow. This is, I was not prepared for this. That's okay. Then you don't have to answer it. But uh, any other? I, you know, I, I have to, like, I've already given him so much love, but like Rick Marshall, like, I, I think he's done a really great job on developing talent. Um, I know he's worked really hard at Brown to build like mentorship program. Um, I would also say like, I wouldn't, we talked about this a little bit at Carnegie Mellon. Um, I'm like, I'm blanking on his last name. Scott. Uh, uh, you know, Matt, um, not Matt. I will send you his name, but there's a VP at Carnegie Mellon that was at Pitt for a long time that is also doing a lot on professional development. Um, I, mean, I, I think it's, I think it continues to be hard. I know we're, we've struggled with this at Pingree um, in retaining talent and building the relationships. I mean, in a business where it's so relationship oriented to have constant turnover just puts you back and you start over with prospects. And I think there's a level of frustration with them of feeling like I'm telling the same story over and over. And so I think institutions where they're really doing a lot to try and retain. Um, but retain as we, I know, I know another institution where they're retaining, but not keeping the same portfolio. Like I, I, I feel like I experience this a lot at Brown and move portfolios a lot. Um, 
and that was at the request of the school uh, to cover areas where we needed more coverage, to move into other roles. And while that was great for me, I, I think career-wise and giving me a lot of opportunities to work in a number of markets, I think it does hurt the relationships because people feel like they're starting over again. Yeah. And so I know other institutions where you kind of have this junior program where you're a leadership gift officer and then you get promoted up to a major gift officer. If you're not with the same prospects, how is it really helping your institution aside from the fact that you're keeping someone who has institutional knowledge, but they don't have relationship knowledge. So they're, they're still starting over. Yeah. Um, I think to be able to really grow with your prospect as a leadership giving officer is important. Um, I really fought for that at Brown at, at, Pingree, it's much easier. We're smaller. And so, you know, if somebody acquires a prospect, they can work with them their entire time at the institution. At Brown and the University of Chicago, I'd imagine this happens a lot as well. You come in as a junior role, you know, you want to move to the next level, which is a completely different prospect pool. And so you lose some of that knowledge or you uncover someone who is a potential seven-figure donor and that gets taken out of your pool and goes to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, I think as a, as a junior fundraiser, it starts to get really frustrating when a lot of the feedback you get is you can't get promoted until you've shown that you can close a big gift. But if you're taking all of my prospects out of my pool that are big gift potential, how am I fulfilling that? Well, luckily at Pingree, <laughs> you can come here and keep your prospects. We're a great team. You'll love it. All right. So we'll end on that. Make the pitch. Are you hiring at Pingree right now? Any open roles? Um, what's, what's the yeah. case, even if not open roles right now, uh, make your last, uh, your My last, last pitch. And we'll, we'll wrap it up. Yeah. Um, obviously I'll let you work from home as we've already covered. We have, you know, like 20 something days of vacation. Um, it's a phenomenal place to work. Everyone's very smart, but we are, I'm happy to say fully staffed. We hired six or seven people this year. Mm -hmm. Um, and I am very hopeful in keeping all of them. I've talked to them. Please let me know if you're unhappy. Um, we would love to fix that <laughs> because we want, we hired great people and we want to make sure that we can keep them. Great note to close on. Elizabeth, always fun to catch up with you. Thanks for reconnecting here. And uh, we look forward to watching your continued success at Pingree and beyond. Cheers. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Bye.